0: Daniel Pinchbeck is the author of 2012 The Return of Quetzalcoatl and Breaking Open the Head, A Psychedelic Journey into the Heart of Contemporary Shamanism. He's one of the editors of the new book Toward 2012, Perspectives on the Next Age. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. Oh, thanks for having me. Daniel, I'd like to start with something I think that's kind of basic to understanding your work, just in general, which is uh, this shamanic view of the world. Tell us a little bit about what the shamanic view of the world is and how it's different from the perceptions that we usually...
1: Sure. Well, I mean, so shamanism was originally a term from uh, Siberia uh, practitioners there, but it's been kind of generalized to um, tribal cultures around the world who have these figures who act as kind of uh, medicine men, vision keepers, storytellers, healers. And uh, the, the, the shaman sort of uh, enters into different levels of consciousness and works with uh, spirits and other entities and demons and so on and, and um, kind of uh, also I, I guess when I, when I use the shamanic uh, you know the idea of a shamanic worldview it's uh, yeah that there are these other levels of, of uh, beings other dimensions of consciousness and that also the, uh, the the physical and the psychic realms are actually not separate the way. You know, kind of the Newtonian, Cartesian, materialist paradigm says they are, but actually, the, uh, the the there's this deeper realm of the psyche that is manifesting through the uh, physical world, through the form of synchronicities, telepathic hints, dream foretellings, books falling off the wall at the propitious moment. So actually, it's almost as if reality itself is a kind of a dream that can be interpreted.
0: Now, uh, your new. This new book, 2012, is kind of, in a sense, to a certain extent, a follow-up to the return of Quetzalcoatl. And I, I want you to explain to us uh, this idea about the date of 2012. Where does that come from? So the uh,
1: classical Mayan civilization, which developed in the Yucatan from the 2nd to the 9th century AD, was a very sophisticated uh, you know, culture. And they had a highly developed uh, astronomical science they also were very deeply invested in shamanism, and they had a deep kind of mythological worldview. And it seems as if they spent hundreds of years trying to establish when a kind of a transition uh, or transformation process would take place uh, you know, in, in the future, and uh, they had a long count calendar, which uh, ends in the year 2012, the date December 21st, 2012, and it goes back 5,125 years before then. And uh, they they isolated that date. It seems, according to the research of John Major Jenkins, uh, in his book Maya Cosmogenesis* 2012, based on the uh, winter solstice sun rising at the dark rift at the center of the Milky Way. Uh, you know, on that date,
0: December 21st. Now that's a pretty sophisticated. Uh cosmology, both spiritually and uh, astronomically. Could you talk a little bit about some of the science behind that?
1: Uh, well, yeah. I mean, they seem to have, they have, a astro- they had astro- astronomical observatories. They must have really been stargazers for hundreds of years in order to, in to really to track these uh, larger processions and galactic movements. I mean, they tracked a lot of the planets of uh, Venus. They were very fascinated with uh, Venus. Um, and, um, you know, it's very hard to extrapolate uh, onto what they were doing because we, we are in a different kind of field of consciousness than they were. And they were also very sophisticated in their architecture. Like if you go to certain monuments, you know, there, there you clap and there's the sound of the Quetzal bird, of the Temple of Quetzalcoatl, or the, a, sh- a shadow of a, a snake will kind of slither up the stones on uh, you know, certain uh, propitious days in the year, the, the equinoxes or the solstices or whatever. So, and they built these structures without the use of the wheel. They, never, they, never, they didn't even have the wheel. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard for us to enter into their mindset as, as they were super sophisticated, but, but it was almost like they were interested in totally different aspects of, of reality than we are.
0: Now this date, uh, December twenty-first, uh, twenty twelve, it's really specific. It's a hard date. It's like uh, Y two K in many ways. And you you say that this isn't the um, the Mayans aren't the only people who who have picked up on this day. Are they?
1: Well they, they are actually the only people who who really were fastened on, on this date and you know personally I myself am not a fundamentalist about the date at all I and mean, I feel that it's more and more clear that we're in a uh, accelerating transformation process and that 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 something about the nature of time the you know, our, our technological capacities this ecological crisis. Uh, and then I think also an evolution in our consciousness and, and our psychic capacities seem to be uh, taking place uh, in 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 this in this period, uh, which which suggests that they did have remarkable prescience. Whether anything in particular happens on that date or not,
0: now uh, this is something you you talk about too. That uh, as opposed to there being just a hard date, that it, there's more this kind of phase of gradual change, and this reminds me of uh something that. Uh, the Polish science fiction writer Stanislaw Lem talked about called the he called it the pericolypse which is an apocalypse that's already transpired. Only we we haven't noticed it yet, and that sounds kind of like what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, that's very um, uh, similar to Terence McKenna's notions that there's this event that, uh, in a way, has sent uh, shockwaves back uh, into the past that we're experiencing as history. It's almost like this magnetic
0: force that's drawing us uh, in. Now. Um, once you you wrote the, the Return of Quetzalcoatl, tell us a little bit about the the website that uh, Reality Sandwich. This is a really fascinating website, and, and I'd like you to explain what it is exactly.
1: Yeah, well, uh, so uh, Reality Sandwich is is a web magazine. We have daily new content, and uh, I, I myself have been blown away by the amazing quality of of the pieces that we receive all the time, considering we don't have the money to pay writers. Uh, and basically it kind of developed, from, from, from my perspective, as a natural extension of writing my first two books. I had a forum for Breaking Open the Head in 2012, came out and I just received so many uh, emails and you know, letters from people who had extraordinary information, extraordinary ideas, and there was no real cultural filter for, for these ideas, which seemed to me um, you know, important for, for people to, to take in and think about. And so, Reality Sandwich was really constructed as as, as a uh, you know as a as a cultural filter and a forum to, to, to collect a lot of these ideas and information and, and really you know because it's our forum we range across a whole gamut of subject matter from sustainable design, Buckminster Fuller, quantum physics, uh, you know, visionary archaeology, you know, to shamanism, consciousness, uh, you know, spiritual practices.
0: Uh, how is it funded? I mean, it's a beautiful website. Do you make money off of that website?
1: Uh, well, we do. We've had uh, some investment and we have some advertisement. And uh, we also have published, uh, you know, we're published, we published this first book toward 2012. We're now going to do a series of books. The next book we're going to do is, is going to be essays on alternative economic models. Uh, so that's an income stream. We also are just launching a social network, uh, evolver.net. Uh, and we'll hopefully at some point develop a membership program uh, around that. Uh, we're interested in even having like an alternative uh, currency, alternative exchange, uh, complementary currency, timeshare type of system. You know, to really, to really, you know, take that idea of evolving, evolving seriously, and offer people tools that
0: could be transformative for their for their real lives. You really make a a lot of use uh, of Web 2.0, the collaborative structure. Could you talk about how that plays in not just to the website, but I think into your overall worldview uh, of this kind of transforming evolutionary consciousness?
1: Hmm, That's interesting. Well, yeah, and the website, I mean, you know, we we, a lot of our uh, content is uh, user-generated and um, we have comments after the articles and I think that's really a lot of where the action is because a lot of times the writers will stay. So it kind of... um, You know, the idea of the authority of the author uh, becomes a little bit less, you know, a sort of hierarchical relationship. And it's more about a community of practice who are engaged in various ideas and and sort of working together in in a philosophical and dialogical process to, like, understand stuff and straighten stuff out, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think, like, um, I'm very interested in... I've been I've been fascinated by the works of uh, Antonio Negri and Michael Hart, who are political philosophers who talk about uh, you know the open source movement, how, how that that suggests that there's a potential shift uh, in consciousness from really these older hierarchical models of corporate organization or military organization to non hierarchical or horizontal network models of production and of uh, communication, and that those that those non hierarchical models could actually uh, kind of supersede the, the old hierarchical structures in the future.
0: Tell me a little bit about uh, change is really uh, something that's really important. And you talk about this. And one of the things that struck me when I was looking through this book was, was that uh, at one point you talk about how personal and global change are intertwined and inseparable.
1: Which one, in, in toward 2012? Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's also, I'm also working on a film project, at 2012 Time for Change, and mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a trailer people can watch at 2012timeforchange.com. That's also a core idea in the movie. That's somehow the the personal process of, of awakening, uh, kind of um, going through some kind of initiatory journey where you recognize that, um, you know, your own personal ego and its desires are not like the be-all and end-all. That There's... All sorts of other things happening in in, in the cosmos, and you know we're, we're best being kind of in, in in humility and kind of in service to these larger processes. Uh, I think that's that's really key, and and in a way, I think we could see with the financial crisis and the ecological meltdown, uh, it's kind of a initiatory moment for the for global humanity as as
0: a whole almost. Now, uh, this word initiation is important because uh, you talk about that how. Uh, uh, I believe it's Joseph Campbell talks about uh, shamanism as as three parts initiation and
1: a separation kind of vision quest and initiation and then return.
0: So tell us a little bit uh, about this initiatory moment that we're experiencing right now.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, I think for a lot of people, it's going to be experienced as a kind of uh, ego death. You know, because they've had all these expectations. They, you know, they kind of presumed that the. abstract systems that modern society had had sort of uh you know surrounded them with uh um encased them in were going to continue as as they were had been told you know for a very long time that they're you know their retirement funds would do this and their money would be worth this and they would have this level of comfort and their children would have this next level of comfort and and in a way that it's a huge systemic shock because suddenly all of that certainty and and those assumptions are are being uh, dismantled and uh, what we're really seeing is that uh, we're we're not going to be in a situation of uh Economic growth anymore because we've hit the finite resources of the planet, and at that point we have to shift our whole uh, paradigm. Our whole underlying model has to shift from quantitative accumulation to something else. And and for me, it's that uh, that inner spiritual journey that people can have, and then and then that 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 shift from a quantitative model of of possessiveness to you know a, a search for a qualitative search for you know a better life a, a deeper soul experience that that's the kind of shift that that, that we're going to have to make in the next few years uh,
0: i think what's really interesting about toward 2012 is that in its form it's some it's it's a fine example of the kind of shift that you see as necessary uh, in a way it encapsulates all the um, the whole of what it addresses just in the way it's put together. So could you talk about how you decided to put together the book with the different sections, the initiation, the shamanic, um, and then going on to art, sex, engagement, community?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it was, you know, it was kind of an intuitive process in terms of looking around at the, you know, the, the essays that had been our favorites and the biggest attractors uh, on the site and then kind of building a uh, an organizational scaffolding uh, around that, you know.
0: So you you just took the best essays from the site and, and then started figuring out where they how they slotted together and what they meant.
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean, the the, the, the um, you know the, the organizing is a little bit similar to the uh, website, which also uses different kind of sections, but it, but it, sections, but it's also it's also different. Uh, it just seemed to work the best. You know, we played
0: around with different ideas. One of the things I like is there's a real great variety of. Writing in this book, I mean, there there is pretty much everything, with the exception of fiction, and I'm somewhat surprised there is no straightforward fiction. But tell us a little bit uh, about um, the you know the variety of the writing. I mean, there's poetry even. So
1: yeah, well, I mean, um, that was one of the really exciting things is we wanted to show that there is this uh, new paradigm that's kind of constellating or, or crystallizing kind of outside of the mainstream. And, you know, it's enough it, it scares the mainstream enough that we still get kind of hacked and, and assailed by the New York Times book reviewers, which I think is almost a good thing at this point. Um, you know, so so, you know, to show that this alternative paradigm is, is is this is a vital thing that that that's growing and that all these different types of people with different angles, different ways of expressing themselves are 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 able to now sort of um, you know, intersect and to see the uh, the connection points between their, their between their worldviews.
0: Now, one thing I, I noticed as, as I read through the book, you have a, a, a number of experiences with ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. Yeah. Tell me a little bit. Tell us what is ayahuasca and, and why it seems to be something that is a, a big part of this book and, and part of your website.
1: Well, it's also been a big part of my work. I, mean, I wrote about it in depth in Breaking Open the Head, my first book, and mm-hmm. then also in uh uh, 2012, the return of Quetzalcoatl, I went down to the Amazon in Brazil and worked with ayahuasca with a uh, religious tradition there called the Santo Daime. And um, of all of the different psychedelic substances, um, ay- ayahuasca seems to be perhaps the most uh, healing one and, and the one that um, – Really brings people back to a relationship to like the planetary intelligence, the sense that there's a, a kind of Gaian mind or Gaian matrix that we're that we're uh, you know connected with, and it's uh, very you know it's made from two plants that are brewed together, one of them contains a dimethyltryptamine or DMT, which is a psychedelic compound that's found in our bodies and our in our Brains may be produced by the pineal gland. Uh, usually, it's if we try to eat it, it's uh, automatically recognized by enzymes in, in the gut and rendered inactive. So, the other plant, uh, the Benisteriopsis copy, uh, contains uh, MAO inhibitors, which allow the DMT to be orally active. So, it's pretty sophisticated jungle chemistry because I think you have to brew these things together for hours. So, a lot of people wonder how. The uh, Indians in the jungle figured it figured this out, and then they say the plants, uh, you know, told them how to do them, to do this in dreams or, whatever. And uh, it's used ayahuasca is really used all over the Amazon, from Brazil through Peru, Colombia, Ecuador, uh, uh, and uh, the, a lot of cultures have kind of, uh, you know, grown around it, around its practices.
0: And, and it's not just the Indians either. It's it's in the suburbs too, isn't it?
1: Uh, Well, yeah. So especially uh, in Brazil, I guess in other countries too, it's become part of mestizo culture. In uh, Brazil, there were two religions or several religions that started around the 1920s when you had um, the mestizo Catholic culture encountering the Indians in the Amazon and drinking with them. Uh, They would start to receive uh, songs that were... uh, Kind of a melding of a Christian and indigenous uh, cultural influences. So the Santo Daime and the de Vegetalis uh, sort of came out of that. Uh, the UDV, one of those Brazilian religions, recently won a case on the Supreme Court level, uh, allowing uh, use of ayahuasca as a sacrament uh, in in their ceremonies.
0: Now, um, let's talk a little bit about some, some of the specific articles. I, I thought it was one thing. I thought was very interesting was uh, Stanislav, Grof, Stanislav Grofs. New understanding of the psyche, and I think this gets to kind of the heart of what you are talking about about consciousness interpenetrating what we would consider uh, Cartesian reality.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Grof is a is, is one of the big Kahuna's in in the consciousness field. I mean, he um, was a, was an LSD researcher in the nineteen fifties. When LSD was outlawed, he uh, created his own uh, modality for inducing uh, non ordinary states of consciousness called holotropic breathwork. And he did an amazing amount of work looking at, um, you know, what happens to people in non-ordinary states and kind of categorizing uh, different uh, phases or stages of non-ordinary state experiences, which he correlates to uh, aspects of the uh, birth trauma. Uh, it's, uh, you know, very, very important and fascinating work. In a way, he kind of uh, in- synthesizes uh, Jung and Freud and, uh, you know, m- may-, may be ultimately seen as one of the crucial uh, thinkers as 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 we go forward into this next paradigm or next
0: age. Um uh, another author I thought was really interesting was, was Adam Adam Ellenboss uh, and his article about exercising Christ from Christianity. It, it brought me to mind uh, Flannery O'Connor uh from in her book Wise Blood. There's a the main character comes back and founds the Church of Christ without Christ.
1: Yeah, well, Adam has been one of our most uh, extraordinary uh, young contributors. He's just done really brilliant uh, work and uh, yeah, he comes from this fundamentalist background. Uh, his father I think was 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 a, was a preacher and he kind of uh, escaped that world and had these ayahuasca experiences and kind of rediscovered, uh, you know, his own kind of uh, mystical connection to the godhead and the universe through through uh, you know these other practices.
0: Uh, one of the things that's really been evolving of late is uh, Christianity itself. It seems to have been pulled free from some of its more uh, political and fundamental uh, roots. Could you talk about how the evolution of religion in terms of uh, this book? Uh, In terms of this
1: book, I I haven't, I'm not quite sure I'm aware of these new developments in Christianity of which you speak. (laughs) Um, You know, it's, Yeah, I mean, I I've been very interested. I mean, I'd love to get a dialogue uh, underway. You know, from my world to to the to different levels of the Christian communities, Uh, and actually, you know, in in a time of uh, economic uh, collapse, uh, people are going to have to re recenter themselves in strong like local community centers, and perhaps churches are going to become re empowered as places where people will uh, gather. Uh, to uh, you know, for all, for all sorts of purposes, but uh, I mean, my my sense is that um, mainstream Christianity is, is is fairly bankrupt, and uh, I, I you know I, I sort of agree with a deep critique of uh, the, the 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 Bible made by a writer named John Lash, who wrote a book called Not in His Image, where he looks at the Gnostics and argues that um, Christianity was kind of a uh, uh, according to the Gnostics was a creation of these. Um, off planet deities called the Archons, who uh, used, you sort of tricked, tricked people by using our propensity for uh, wanting to be perfect uh, to uh, sort of enslave us in, in, in a uh, sort of devious uh, religious structure that was terrible for our uh, actual uh, evolution.
0: And, and you have a, an article in uh, the book on, on the Gnostic uh, Gospels. Uh, the Secret History of, of uh, Jesus. Oh, that's not
1: my book. That's not my article. Uh, no, that's, John, no. that's one of my uh, one of my cohorts. Jonathan uh, wrote that piece.
0: Right, right. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, the—you have an uh, entire section on art. And since this book is largely itself, uh, in many ways, a work of art, t- tell us how, how the part that art plays in evolving our consciousness.
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think um, uh, art is—I don't really know. I don't have a soundbite for you on that one. Uh, I mean, I grew up in an artistic background. My father was an abstract painter. My mother was a, a writer and novelist, part of the Beat Generation. So I've always had a had a sense of uh, the importance of uh, cultural cultural uh, milieu, high culture. I mean, I think uh, you know, art has been where. Well, in my first book, I talked about art in relationship to shamanism and how how the artists kind of took over the role that shamans had in in, in, uh, pre-literate cultures in order to, you know, sort of transduce a visionary experience
0: uh, for the mainstream. You have a whole segment on sex, which I think is very interesting. Where does sex fit into this evolving consciousness?
1: Uh, well, I, yeah, I mean, I, one, one book that really fascinates me is this book from uh, Gerald Hurd. I think he wrote it in the 40s called Pain, Sex, and Time. And in that book, he looks at how the um – Uh, Our our human capacity to endure incredible suffering and also our uh, hair-trigger sex drive, which you don't find in any other species, which doesn't have any time period for the female, really, how how these suggest almost an an excess evolutionary capacity that creates a kind of uh, nervous – uh, uh tension in, in, in the human being, and he, he really suggests that 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 energy has to be uh, repurposed for a consciousness transformation that if it, that, that would lead to a kind of uh, mutation of, of, of the human species to a higher level so I, I, I kind of agree with that I mean on the one hand you could look at sex, the sex impulse as the life impulse as related to what Eastern traditions talk about as a kundalini. And um, I think sex is a, a primary way that a social control is uh, enacted. Uh, I mean, I think you have people, you know, wasting, uh, young people in New York, wasting a huge amount of their life essence in pursuit of sex and bars and, you know, whatever. And, and actually, um, it would be really, uh, I think, very powerful to elevate uh, sexuality and re and resacralize it and, and give it a, a very different role
0: in, in human culture going forward. And, and um, you, you also, now, you have a section called Engagement. I'd like you to tell, like you to tell me what you mean by engagement. Sure. Well, um, I mean, I, I guess what
1: um, has become more and more clear to myself and other people involved with this project is um, the only way we're going to have a positive transformation of uh, human culture uh, is if there's a really bottom-up movement in which, you know, all sorts of people uh, around the, this country and around the world start re-engaging with their social and political reality on, on a local and grassroots level. So the one of the next the, the next project we're doing now is an, is a new website a new social network called evolver.net and we're looking at a model called uh, Transition Town which is an English social organizing model where you get local communities to meet you uh you know you you have speakers on peak oil climate change the effects of economic dislocation on that community's future most likely and then you have a town hall where you bring more people in then you then you bring local government into a into a process of uh, Discussion and then actually try to implement relocalizing food production, relocalizing energy, industry, uh, local currencies, complementary currencies. I think that um, potentially with the uh, social technologies of the internet, you could, uh, you know, first of all, do kind of rapid prototyping of different ideas, second of all, create a whole scaffolding so that the best ideas become instantly available to any community around the world that wants to plug into into them and to begin their own process of becoming more resilient and self-reliant and uh, my hope is that this is going to become this is going to catch on very quickly a, 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 as a way of going about things because I think we're going to see uh, a, a very um, Dangerous uh, collapse of uh, our economic structures, our support structures, you know, our supply chains. You know, I think that um, we don't really know yet how uh, bad things are going to get in this country. But if you look at, uh, you know, the prophecies of, of uh, people, you know, traditions like the Hopi Indians, it's gonna, it could get very bad indeed. And we still have a short window of time where we could be transitioning to a relocalized, uh, you know,
0: resilient uh, model of, of of activism around the country. Um, could you talk about how um, you, you mentioned that uh, if our, there's going to be a positive change, is uh, I was hoping that was the only outcome. <laughs> is, is, is that not the case? Is there, is it possible that things could go deeply awry?
1: Oh, totally. I mean, um, I, I, I mean, I don't look at you know, I look at 2012 as a window of opportunity to you know help bring about a uh, catalyze a transformation of global consciousness and culture. But you know, if, if it's a consciousness uh, evolution, that means it's totally participatory. So if, if the, the human multitudes decide they don't want to participate in that and they want to remain uh, deluded and pacified by destructive mass media and, and, delu- and authority structures, then uh, I think we'll see uh, a lot of uh, devastation. Um, but I, I yeah, so so you know for me the, my my new way of I guess of languaging it would be that what we 're in is the cusp of a transition in in species evolution from the biological and physical phase of our evolution to the uh, psychic phase, and um for me that there 's this potential having had all sorts of crazy psychic uh, experiences. Through shamanic ceremonies, without them, including like synchronicities and spirit visitations and telekinesis and transmissions, and collecting a huge amount of anecdotes from other people, that more and more of this type of stuff is happening. I think that yeah, there's a, there's a transitioning, a change happening in the uh, capacities and, and sort of of the human psyche that we have the, that we have this opportunity to access the dormant capacities of the psyche for, for evolution, and uh, that for me is, is very exciting and and very and very hopeful. And uh, once that catches on, uh, that, that type of transformation could happen uh, extremely fast.
0: Now, both of your, your previous books and, and big chunks of this book, uh, I think, depend on a kind of writing that's rather unusual, which is uh, the transcription of uh, transformative experiences, uh, recording hallucinate nations, recording spiritual journeys. Could you talk about the difficulty of putting these kind of things into words? Um, Sure. It's pretty difficult. I mean, um, I don't know why
1: it became something that I just really explored and 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 developed the skill. I mean, I really um I guess I'd been a journalist, I'd interviewed a lot of people, I'd been used to really listening closely to other people when they spoke to me. So and I had a I have I have a strange ability of like self-distancing that I've had since a child when I had like a back injury and I was in a body cast for seven or eight months. So for somehow or other, I I was able to approach these very subjective experiences while maintaining a kind of a witness consciousness or observer uh, mentality. So, so I was able to even take notes during the experiences, and for the second book, two thousand twelve, sometimes it really was almost like a like I was having a journalistic interview with a plant uh, intelligence that was, you know, had specific teachings, even in even in uh, language. I would get kind of like responses to my questions or uh, shouted into my head.
0: Well, uh, if we're on the other end of that experience, you're you're receiving. You're your having these transformative psychic and, and other types of experiences. Um, we're reading about them, and, and in the act of reading, we transform the language into something that, that in our mind. The reading experience is that going to be enough for us? I mean, to get us. He's closer. asking if
1: you have to go out and trip yourself, or can you just read about it? <laughs> yeah. Can, can we just read about it? I mean, I mean, that's you know, individual decision. I mean, in in uh, tribal shamanic cultures. You know, I don't think m- most people would have psychedelic experiences. Maybe they would have them once in their lives to kind of validate what the shaman said. But, um, you know, so, so, so it may be the same thing. And maybe that it's a naturally a smaller group of people who gravitate to having those type of extreme visionary experiences. And then, and then they, they are kind of, uh, you know, the ones who uh, receive and then transduce the uh, frequencies of new information for the larger group.
0: Now, one thing that, that is mentioned a couple times in this book, and I think you've talked about, is that we're kind of returning in a way to, uh, and this is, uh, I think, seen by many people, including me, as a good thing. We're headed towards a period that's much more like the 1960s, that we've seemed to, up through 2008, um, to the end of th- 2008, things were, were somewhat dire, and now and now we're kind of unlocked into this period of kind of some chaotic but uh, potentially positive change. Could you talk about how that plays? And I thought it was very interesting that you brought back a, that among the many forms of writing that you put in this book, you had an interview with uh, Abby Hoffman.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there um, there could be resonance with the 60s, and there does seem to be. I mean, I feel like... Um, you know, the, in New York anyway, the artists are beginning to like come out of their garrets and cellars, and you know, because now the whole Wall Street uh, value s- system has uh, been decimated, and that's I think has sup- been a massive uh, suppression instrument on on culture and the arts in a way. And 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 um, so I'm excited to think about what's going to happen as, as there is a kind of liberation. Uh, you know, there's also maybe shades of the Great Dust Bowl in the 1930s coming up. Um, there also um, is a, you know, a potential for a very r- rapid shift back into uh, authoritarianism or, or fascism because people are going to be very, very lost, and they're going to be looking for people to tell them what's up. So that, that's a big, a big fear for me, that um, you know, things, could, things could go rapidly uh, very, very wrong.
0: And how do you intend to act to prevent that from happening?
1: Well, I mean, I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to – I mean, I think that media is super important. Basically, um, you know, we could look at – I mean, these political philosophers I like a lot. Antonio Negri talks about how the most important form of production in uh, our our contemporary society is is actually the production of subjectivity, the production of consciousness. And the media is actually a a mechanism that produces a certain type or certain level of human consciousness. You know, so our our mass media has – uh, you know, in, indoctrinates people into a kind of consumer, level of consciousness, uh, kind of you know, obedient uh, to authority, structure, consciousness. And it could be that a different type of media could help people to shift into a more participatory engagement with their own lives, with the, with the natural environment, with their, with their community. So I, I see what I'm doing is trying to help provide tools, scaffolding, social technologies, and, and, and new media that uh, offers this other paradigm.
0: And in that last sentence, you just use both engagement and community, which is the community is the last uh, uh, section in your book. And that's where you come talk. You do talk about Transition Town and, and Peak Oil. You have a, a, an article in there. It's not you. It's it's another author. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what you mean by community and, and where you see, see this kind of Community forming.
1: Well, I mean, what's fascinating right now is is through. I mean, there's there's local communities. You know, I mean, if you look at any. Um uh, historical period where uh, centralized structures break down and there's some kind of revolution, it actually, the, the first thing that happens is, is local communities form uh, proto-political uh, structures, whether it's in local factories or local schools, I mean, people have a natural tribal instinct to gather, to find those people who who are the best to lead them uh, in certain areas, you know. So, you know, and, and I think those, those natural political instincts have been suppressed by uh, you know, the, the way modern culture has been hierarchically organized organized so that's one form of community but then another form of community is communities of shared interests or shared values and what's really extraordinary about the about the internet is that it's allowing uh, those types of communities to form uh, you know globally uh, almost instantaneously um, so that I think is, is a very exciting development and we're seeing um, you know almost a revolutionary new ways that 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 uh, groups can can constitute themselves and, and find each other and identify shared values and shared interests.
0: Uh, I think it's really interesting that in the midst of all this technology, that one uh, of the you're bringing out a book, which is a technology that's you know, 500 years old at least, uh, more than 500. Um, could you talk about how people are who pick up this book are? supposed to read it? I mean, do we just sit down and read it cover to cover? Do we? Is it is it a nightstand book where we just pick it up, pick and choose like a smaller sport? Well, I
1: don't know. I mean, I, I think reading cover to cover is nice. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I wrote my last book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, and it was, um, you know, a ridiculous title with this, you know, a, a date and then this ridiculous word that nobody knows. A very long book full of like Heidegger and Nietzsche and Carl Jung, and basically anybody would have thought this is like a hopeless publishing task. But I really believe that the ideas in it were important, the message was important. And, you know, at this point, I think there's like 150,000 copies uh, in print in the US. So, you know, it definitely uh, found an audience that resonated with it and have shared the ideas and information. So, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, books still have a, have a place. And uh, there's an engagement you can have with with a book that's just different than any other media form. It's it's a it's a I think books, uh, you know, have have a capacity to uh, reshape our our consciousness on a, on a deeper level than other forms of media.
0: Uh, and one thing that that is also I think ties into all this um, on the high tech end are especially with evolving consciousness, all the advances we've made in neuroscience, I mean, we can literally see thoughts now. Could you talk about how you think that might play into your the evolving of consciousness?
1: Yeah, well, so that's true. I mean, there's a lot of new technology and and, and uh, advances, and some of it is uh, very uh, exciting and fascinating. Uh, some of it is also very uh, dangerous and threatening, uh, I mean, you have Nick Begich who's looked at the HARP project and uh, secret government mind control projects uh, and um, believes there's already technology that could like, project you know, a voice into somebody's head uh, from far away and so on, uh, or technology that could make a whole populace uh, agitated or, or angry uh, through, through changing the electromagnetic uh, frequencies in the air. Um, Is so, that angels don't play these these harps? Yeah, exactly. Nick ah, Baggage. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, but on the positive side, yeah, you have um, you know brain scans. The work that the Dalai Lama has been doing with neuroscientists, where they've actually been able to study what what's going on in, in the brains of meditative monks, and and really demonstrating that they're uh, able to kind of hold themselves at at a, at a bandwidth of kind of peace and contentment, and and uh, you know deeper. Uh, states of awareness. So um, so yeah, you know, this whole 2012 thing seems like a great movie in a way. It's like a, it's a photo, photo finish uh, race to see uh, what happens.
0: I've been speaking with Daniel Pinchbeck. He's one of the editors of the new book Toward 2012, Perspectives on the Next Age. Thank you for joining me, Daniel.
1: Thanks very much for having me. I enjoyed it very much.